This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, the little sex show disguised as a health show. Good evening. I am Maureen McGrath, registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, and sexpert. Okay, that means it's time to put the kitties to bed. The benefits of sex range from slashing your stress levels to decreasing your risk of chronic illness. The benefits of good health means your relationship and your sex life, if you've got one, might even improve. Sex facilitates bonding and feelings of intimacy, which does more than make you feel warm and fuzzy all over. It actually boosts your overall health. If you have a question tonight for me on the program, feel free to email me at nursetalk at hotmail.com. That's nursetalk at hotmail.com, N-U-R-S-E-T-A-L-K at hotmail.com. You can always call me too, one 399 That's one 877 399-9898. Remember, this is not a replacement for a visit to your healthcare provider, lazy as you might be, for whatever ails you. So head on over there to your doctor if you've got some issues, because early diagnosis is always fantastic. Good evening, Andrew. Great to have you tonight on the program. <laughs> oh, hi. I wasn't even prepared for this. I don't even have my headphones on. So don't say anything yet. Okay, hi. I'm not saying anything. Okay, there we go. <laughs> Then we're fine. Then, Me I think. say anything? <laughs> I don't know. I actually know that might be your job. That might that might be that might be what you have to could do. Could be, could be. That There's reminds no me of a story when I was actually hospitalized, and they was weren't because you were talking too much. I know. <laughs> I thought that was where this was going. That wasn't made to insinuate anything. That's turned into a chronic illness, but I was, uh, (laughs) no, in fact, they weren't giving me enough morphine and I had kidney stones. And so I said Ah. to the doctor who I happen to know, Hey, you know, I'm in significant pain here. I'm in severe pain. And, and so he went out and he said to the nurses, Hey, why aren't you in his Australian accent? So may I go there? Why aren't you medicating Maureen? And the nurses said, well, you know, we, you know, she's a nurse, we know her, and we're afraid we're going to kill her. And I heard him say, kill her? You're never going to kill her. She's going to go down talking, that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 10 milligrams of morphine, there I was, out like a light. It oh, was wonderful. <laughs> it was fantastic. Anyway, <laughs> so I'm going down talking. You heard me. I'm glad we're off to a, to a good kick here. <laughs> yeah, we're not off to a great start here. But tonight on the program, we're talking about cheating and cheating shame, forgiveness, HSDD, what is that? Anti-aging fruits, pronouns, burnout. No, we're not talking about pronouns. Burnout, no, we're not talking about that either. I'm feeling a little burnt out tonight. Quickies, yeah, we're talking about that. And journaling in tough times. However, right now it is time for, bear with me. (laughs) Maureen's Health Headline. There it is. And what are we talking about? The increase in the rates of syphilis in the province of Alberta, only because they've looked at it. Probably if we look at it in other provinces, we're going to see spikes as well. And this is a very important subject. Uh, Sexually transmitted infection, well, sex education in and of itself, number one, is a very important subject. And a lot of people are, you know, getting a little lazy on the safer sex. It's really important to practice safer sex no matter what your age. A lot of people over the age of 65 do not practice safer sex because they never learned about it. That's why safe sex is so important. People over the age of 65, and I'm not saying that uh, that the rates of syphilis in Alberta were limited to people over the age of 65, but just one group that uh, has lacks the education 
in terms of understanding that they can contract a sexually transmitted infection from their partner. And guess what? Yeah, people over the age of 65 are sexually active. In fact, in my clinical practice, there's more people over the age of 65 having sex. That's one person, and then there's way less than than the ones under 65, that's zero. (laughs) And I'm not kidding. Um, So, But it's very important at any age, but they never had that education. And the other part of it is that... um, People in high-risk populations, of course, we are looking at this more frequently, so we're measuring it more, and we're getting sexual health histories a little bit more, and so people are getting tested more frequently, and so it stands to reason that there will be more people who are then diagnosed with a sexually transmitted infection, because we're actually looking at it. We're actually trying to um, you know, measure it. So although syphilis, which is a bacterial infection, is treated with antibiotics, although it is an uncommon STI, it is an infection nonetheless. A rate increase of 305% in Edmonton, Alberta. Hello, Edmonton. Good evening. How are you tonight? (laughs) Feeling okay there? Or um, a little embarrassed, a little ashamed given this? There's a wake-up call. This is your wake-up call. Give me a call, 1-877-399-9898. Why the rise in syphilis? As I mentioned, we have increased access to sexually transmitted infection. That's going to uncover more more cases. Uh, And let's face it. Sex is more pleasurable without a condom or a dental dam. Oh, you haven't heard of a dental dam? Okay, we're going to talk about what that's for a little bit later on in the show because you may not have put the kids to bed yet. But a dental dam is also important. Um, Plus, HIV is now considered to be a chronic disease versus a death sentence. So we are far more relaxed on this. The other um, issue I want to raise is there are some high-risk populations. And this is an interesting one, there are, there are men who have sex with men. You may be one of them. You may be married to a woman. The men who have sex with men, or MSMs, are males who engage in sex with other males regardless of how they identify. And so as I said, they may be married to a woman, but they may have some affairs going on outside. And, that's, uh, and there's a number of reasons that for men who have sex with men. But the other reason we're seeing an increase in the rise is that extramarital affairs are on the rise as well and may be the only area where women are gaining gender parity. So according to the latest research that I have reviewed, 19% of women have admitted to an affair versus 24% of men. You go, girls. No, I'm totally kidding. We're going to talk about how hard that is a little bit later on in the program, the trauma of an extramarital affair. But nonetheless, we've got to even the score somehow. Um, so this is, these numbers are probably low, significantly low, because even on an online survey, people do not want to admit that they've ever cheated on their partner, their husband, their wives, whomever. But women need to be particularly on high alert because syphilis is associated with a significant rise in congenital syphilis, which is which can lead to neurological damage and also death in a baby. And so it's very important that women be tested and know who you're having sex with, understand the sexual health history of the person that you're having sex with. And, and sometimes that doesn't happen because of the rise in casual sex dating apps. They have contributed to the rise of STIs, particularly syphilis, because, along with chemsex. You know, these casual sex dating apps. It's just like, hey, you smorgasbord, you can have sex with this one and then that one. And then if that doesn't work out, there's 20,000 behind there. But chemsex is when um, any use of any substance to alter your um, mind, basically any mind altering sub- 
substance will make you less inhibited and less likely to practice safer sex. That includes alcohol as well. So time to wake up. And um, anyway, if you have any questions at all about this, feel free to email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. All of your emails are in confidence, of course. Um, But right now, you may be in a relationship where somebody has had an extramarital affair, and you may have found out because they contracted a sexually transmitted infection, and you may need to find it in your heart to forgive them. Well, up next, Erica Harris joins me. She's had to forgive for a whole different reason. She's had to forgive a whole lot of people. Stay tuned for her inspiring story. I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. This is Maureen McGrath. Thank you so much for joining me. Studies have found that some people are just naturally more forgiving. Consequently, they tend to be more satisfied with their lives and to have less depression, anxiety, stress, anger, and hostility. People who hang on to those grudges, however, are more likely to experience severe depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as other health conditions. But that doesn't mean that they can't train themselves to act in healthier ways. In fact, 62% of adults say they need more forgiveness in their personal lives, according to a survey by the nonprofit Fetzer Institute. Erica Harris joins me in the studio. Erica is just an amazing person. She has incredible stories. She's one of the most inspirational people that I've ever met. And she found that she had to forgive somebody significant in her life. Good evening, Erica. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Maureen. Thanks for that lovely introduction. That oh, was really nice. Very welcome. Uh, so let's just have a little background about what happened to you. Um, what, sure. What you were given. Sure. So despite living a life passionate about health and wellness to the point I'd even established a very successful career in that very arena as a thriving sports chiropractor, having owned, operated and sold my own thriving practice in the heart of Point Grey, um, uh, and having practiced what I preached by hiking every mountain and soaring down them on my skis, I myself had somehow been diagnosed with what proved to be a very aggressive version of leukemia at the young age of 35 while nursing my youngest. At the time, I was happily married, passionate mama to my two wee boys, and loved living life as we did at 35. I then, over the next three years, had a tumultuous um, uh, go with all of the trials and tribulations that came my way. I have come to stand not only as a survivor of a once predicted two-month terminal prognosis, having not responded to even the harshest of chemotherapy regimens, um, but further, uh, I stand as the humbled and honored uh, recipient of both a bone marrow transplant and subsequently a double lung transplant. And um, we were a very strong family unit on the path. I am only sitting in front of you because all of the efforts that my um, amazing husband had had contributed towards um, towards saving me uh, day in and day out, over and over and over. Um, but the trials and tribulations proved too great for our marriage uh, to withstand. And very sadly, uh, my husband chose to separate uh, almost at the end of the path once I was very well. And so let me say that you look the picture of health today, and Aww. it could be from the inside out, you're beaming, and you always beam whenever I see you. Um, so 
it was poignant that your husband stayed by your side the entire pathway, the entire medical journey. You had two young children who were growing at the time and, and grew into little boys and, and, you know, going through a double lung transplant, bone marrow transplant, chemotherapy, all of that, that takes time that wreaks havoc on your body, your soul, your spirit. Um, and at the end of it all, and you think, here we are, we're, we're together, we've made it. I'm, I'm on the pathway of health. Um, your husband leaves you. Um, how difficult, you know, have you forgiven him? And how have you been able to do that? That's a good question. And um, obviously very, very, very trying. We were madly, passionately in love. And to see the trials and tribulations wither what we had had that strong bond was devastating and crushing on all levels. And to see it go so sour um, was also very trying uh, on every level. I had been um, passionate about giving my, my children this family unit, and I just saw that for myself as I grew older. Um, but letting go has been a big part of this journey uh, from a very career-driven woman, having to let go of this one's very physical frame that I took such pride and such strength in, um, letting go of this family unit idea that, that was now out of reach. Um, it was all very hard. You must have been angry with him. Hands you must have down. gone through a grieving process. Definitely. And at what point did you get to forgiveness and how did you decide, I, I'm going to let go of the negative emotion if you had experienced that uh, with him? Um, you know, And how do you think it benefited you? Sure. So the anger really came from, um, I guess I just wanted some time after being well, just to try to reconnect and and um, and focus on our marriage, uh, and so I felt that that had been ripped away per mm-hmm. se. Um, and so, getting over that lost vision that I had had as of this family unit was very trying. But I feel very strongly that maintaining this negativity and the anger that we all hold in these scenarios is only trying and devastating on our own health and our own sense of well-being because it creates this this negative hue, this heaviness, this intensity around which you conduct everything. And um, I feel strongly that being real with your emotions first is a very important process on this path and letting yourself grieve um, and being open to grieve those emotions of of hurt and sadness and, and literally anger and expressing that in whether it's letters to yourself or just uh, to that person in a certain degree, just to, 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 to express that and being real and walking away from that and literally leaving it there so that you can live your life without holding on to that negativity. And if I kept that anger, it would only be affecting me and my enjoyment of life. It wouldn't be affecting the person that I'm angry at. Right, of mm-hmm. course. And and those people that, that typically hold a grudge or are angry, um, you know, their their health is affected. Hands down. I'm looking at a study right now from the John Hopkins Hospital that chronic anger puts you into fight or flight mode, which results in numerous changes in heart rate, blood pressure, and immune response. Those changes then increase the risk of depression, heart disease, and diabetes among other conditions. Forgiveness, however, calms stress levels leading to improved health. And 
Um, it can't have been easy though. You, your financial position changed, which often changes after divorce. Mm -hmm. And of course you hadn't worked for a while. Mm -hmm. And and so it must've been extremely tough for you to rise then as you rise today and uh, forgive him and live in that continued forgiveness. Yes. My divorce lawyer kind of jokes and he says, you know what, Eric, I have no happy clients coming into my office. You walk in and you just sparkle. How do you do this? And to be very honest, having heard the words, you have two months to live, realizing that your children may never come to know how much you truly and utterly adore every little thing about them, puts everything into perspective. Our days are limited. And I want to set an example for my children as to how I rise today and live every day to my fullest. And anger wouldn't let me live like that. And you are a great example to so many people who actually hold on to anger and are missing out on life and maybe affecting their health. As Oprah said, and I know you met her, mm-hmm. forgiveness is letting go of the past, keep the truth alive, but not the pain. That's right. And your website is? Ah, uh, risetoday.com. And so is that the best way for people to uh, contact you if they Definitely. want to hear more of your inspirational story, get have you speak, because I know you're speaking, you're a motivational speaker now, and, and if they want to learn a little bit about forgiveness. Yes, and I share my a heartfelt story in a very raw and open fashion to serve as a friend for all of those navigating in dark and trying days and just feeling so alone. Erica Harris, Rise Today, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me on again, Oh, uh, It's always a pleasure. That's risetoday.com. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. If you have a question for me, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's 1-877-399-9898. Many women complain of low sexual desire. In fact, according to the Preside study, about 38% of women between the ages of 24 and 44 complain of low sexual desire and 12% are bothered by it. There are a number of reasons for low sexual desire in women from fatigue, which is the number one reason, to medications, antidepressants will have a side effect of low sexual desire, medical conditions, depression, anxiety, unresolved conflict, history of sexual abuse, sexual trauma. The list is lengthy. Uh, We're focusing on women tonight, although men can experience low sexual desire as well. Um, But I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Natalie Gamash. She is an expert in the field of female sexuality and focuses in on low sexual desire and the medical condition that many women suffer, which is called hypoactive sexual desire disorder. We're going to be talking about that as well. Thank you for joining me in the studio, Dr. Gamash. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Maureen. Oh, you're very welcome. So you're you're an obstetrician gynecologist. I'm actually a gynecologist. A gynecologist. I did a fellowship in menopause and stopped uh, practicing obstetrics at that time. That oh, was about okay. 16 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you're a gynecologist, mm. and so it's fantastic uh, because, you know, most gynecologists should have your expertise, but often, <laughs> sometimes they don't focus on that. And the majority don't. And if I can backtrack a little bit, mm-hmm. I received absolutely no training in sexual health for women during my 10 years of training. Everything I have had to be acquired by experience and digging around literally. That's right. And after medical school. And that's one of the biggest gaps is that physicians are not taught about this critical area of women's health, sexual health for women. So a lot of women, I imagine, present to your office because you're well known um, with this. 
in Vancouver uh, that they present with low sexual desire. And so tell me some of the reasons um, the women present to your office. What are the most common things that you see? Multitude. So I just moved to Vancouver, by the way. I had a huge practice in Ottawa for 15 years prior to this. And uh, if we can make a disclaimer, I had almost a two-year wait list for my patients who suffered from sexual health issues. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there is obviously a huge problem out there. To wait two years. To wait two years to to find the one Mm -hmm. person who may be able to address their issues. Right. Um, the, The multitude of factors that they bring in Uh, including relationship issues, including low libido and low interest and dysfunction in their partner, but the partner will not reach out and seek medical attention. So the female or woman in the partnership is basically in the office trying to find some solutions for herself and her couple, very commonly. Um, Low libido, uh, as you mentioned, fatigue. So we work, we live in a world of exhaustion. We overdo everything. We don't have time for ourselves. And I find that the biggest um, drawback or, or lack of the link, the missing link, basically, is the fact that women have very little time for themselves, do not have the ability to delegate and make time for themselves, especially as we age and we move on beyond menopause, as we're looking after parents and children and jobs and changing. And, and there's so many things happening at that time of life. And uh, and the me and the equation disappears very quickly and you cannot be a satisfied, interested sexual being without being able to look after yourself first of all, whether it's for yourself or in the couple. And the surprising thing about this is that this is not uh, a condition that is limited to postmenopausal women. In fact, we see this very frequently in premenopausal women. So women who may be at the height of their career, they're working inside and outside of the home, they're raising children, their parents may start to have memory problems or require some assistance. And so they are doing it all and they're not doing it. And they may still uh, be in love with their partner. They may want to remain in the marriage, but they just have no uh, sex drive, no sex interest. Um, but that, so that's one group of, mm-hmm. of people. Absolutely. And those are things that can be turned around. Yes. Transient. Yes. So definitely. there's another group of people, of women, who have nannies and they're not working, they're not exhausted, they can balance their lives perhaps, they're not, they don't have any one of those reasons that we both mentioned, medication, whatever. And so what percentage of women experiences that and what might that be? It's been deemed to be about 10% in the general population. We're focusing mostly on women over the age of 35, but to the infinity after that. They're very commonly my patients who will walk in and say, I have an amazing life. I don't perceive any negative stressors. I love my couple. He's my soulmate. We've been friends forever. If there is a couple, actually, um, life is in balance. I have time for myself and it is just dead up there. I cannot motivate myself to engage sexually. I never think about it. If I, I, I often play the game of living on a deserted island and asking them if they would care. And most of them will simply say, I wish I would, I wish I could, but it's not there anymore. I, I don't know where it's disappeared. And it was there before. It was there before. And, and they are bothered by this. They are extremely distressed. And so they want their sex 
lives back and they in particular they want their sexual desire back. Absolutely. And I think it's very distressing for most of them to not understand what's happened. And again, as you mentioned, it happens to the young population below the age of menopause. It does happen more often in the menopausal women because again, we can toss the hormonal issues and so on and the vaginal baby, dryness. Absolutely. Yes. So one of the issue again is is the pain is women who are not aware that there's actually so many things that can be done to be, you know, of help for them in that department. I shock people every day walking in going, I've been living like this for 18 years and you mean something could have been done in terms of pain and vaginal dryness and tightness. And they've basically jumped the ship because they are not aware that something can actually be done to be helpful down there. But um, there's a huge population of young women and I see them at 18 and 20 and 22 and they're just exploring life. If they're exploring their own sexuality for the very first time very often, they may be coupled or not, and they're distressed about the lack of interest, and they certainly deem themselves to be completely abnormal as we gauge the expectations of society towards us in a sexual department. Right, and so these women typically have had sexual desire in the past. This particular medical condition that they might be diagnosed with, that they might uh, come to you, um, and have an assessment done, a differential diagnosis. So they typically have had sexual desire in the past and they've lost it. Absolutely. With the same partner. So how often I mean, or how long would a woman need to experience this loss of interest, this love for her partner, wanting to want it, but just feels nothing up there, down there um, for her partner? How long would that have to be before one would start to um, think about? So by definition, mm-hmm. hyposexual desire disorder, that's a mouthful, um, has to be in place for six months or longer, I'm going to say that the average person probably waits for five, ten years before they'll reach for help, right. and and sometimes much, much longer. So the six months is almost unheard of in clinical work. Um, it, it's a short time, um, you know, in the area of what we see in the clinical picture. Yes, I see women who, um, you know, two years, four years, five years, twenty, no sex. Yes, absolutely, um, and. So how often um, does this occur? Is this, does this occur in every sexual situation? Um, how often, you know, is it 75, you know, in 75 to 100% of the time for the diagnosis to be made? Yes, exactly. So yes. the diagnosis to be made basically is six months mm-hmm. and it must be encountered in that, for that person within 75 to 100% of the time as it was much less of a, of a percentage before that. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and of course, the, that marked distress or interpersonal difficulty or extreme bother is another uh, criteria for diagnosis. Absolutely. So you correctly pointed out that we have to eliminate, which is, you know, some project on its own, all of the other possible reasons. And sometimes we have to dig. So as a gynecologist, it's interesting that I've become the sexual counselor, the psychologist, the nutritionist, the life balance coach, and so on and so on, because I have to delve into this conversation initially, as some women will 
come in and they're, they've waited a long time with their problems. They've waited a long time to see somebody who finally has some expertise to discuss the issue. And they're wishing to have something resolved immediately. And it's very important to um, isolate the problem as one that has no explanation, no foundation, no reason to basically be there. So... And uh, so as we defined, HSDD or hypoactive sexual desire disorder is, is persistently or recurrently deficient or absent sexual fantasies and desire for <laughs> sexual activity accompanied by clinically significant distress and is not otherwise accounted for by a general medical or psychiatric condition. If you were speaking to general practitioners out there who I am certain have seen patients who presented with low sexual desire and potentially hypoactive sexual desire disorder, the medical condition, HSDD, what would you recommend for the general practitioners out there as a screening tool? Um, Do you ever offer the DSDS to have them screen that? Or what are some of the tips that you might give to a general practitioner? So the the screening tools out there are very much for research purposes Mm -hmm. to screen people or women in this case into research projects. Um, I, I really sway the general practitioner or anybody else in medicine, including nurse practitioners and gynecologists and psychiatrists from staying away from these very complicated tests. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it has to remain very simple. Opening the conversation is number one. Most women actually would love to have the conversation started in a clinical setting. They have been shown to resist because they perceive very commonly that they will embarrass their healthcare provider. So the conversation stays very quiet. It takes a long time. I mean, I always refer back to a study that showed that women will take five to six years before they will bring to their practitioner um, some health issues surrounding their bladder. And I always say, you know, imagine what it will be regarding sex. So the, the opening of the conversation, the equipping yourself with resources so that you don't necessarily feel that you're the person who's going to be resolving all of these issues for the patient in front of you who finally comes and dares bring up the topic um, to, to equip yourself with the right resources and to simply ask if there are any concerns of sexual nature. That's where I would have everybody start and, and a lot of people because you understand that they've not received any training in the six or ten mm-hmm. years of training of medical school that they've done um, is a very, very scary topic. We also do not put any emphasis in medical schools, unfortunately, in our training to the fact that, as you alluded to earlier, sexuality is so, so important for it, health and it, wellness. It is, it is. And, and just to, uh, patients come to us because they have sexual issues, and so they, they know we're going to ask them about sexual. Absolutely. Uh, their sexuality. Even still, I ask for their permission. I say, I'm going to ask you these questions, and you can stop any time. And so, so I often, GPs will ask me, well, you know, how do I start this? And so I often suggest that they use the DSDS or the Decreased Sexual Desire Screener. And, and so that really gives them 
some of the questions, and mm-hmm. they might be able to get comfortable with those, like asking how your level of sexual desire or interest was in the past year. Has there been a decrease in your level of sexual desire? Are you bothered by your decreased level of sexual desire? And would you like your level of sexual desire um, to increase? So what are the treatments for HSDD? Absolutely. Um, very few in North America. Actually, mm-hmm. we're a big black hole in the in the world. There's been a lot of developments. There used to be some products in North America that went basically the way of the dodo mm-hmm. as uh, 2002 rolled around and we lost all of our ability to counsel around hormone therapy for menopause. There was a huge global um, overestimated scare of that. Is there so, a medication now? There is a medication that just came uh, to Canada some months ago that's called Addy. Yes. Um, that is basically uh, focusing on resetting the neurotransmitters in the brain to permit and favor a healthy sexual drive. Yes. Okay. That's Addy, A-D-D. Addy, A-D-D-Y-A. Y-I. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. It's um, late okay, on Sunday. So it's great to know um, that this uh, low sexual desire may in fact be a medical condition and there that there is treatment for it. Absolutely. And that's in the form. There is Absolutely. medication should that be I don't needed. think we should be offended that it's a medical condition. It actually brings it up to the surface so we can talk about it finally and address the issue. It certainly does. And Dr. Natalie Gamash, uh, what's the best way for people to get, they'll need a referral from their GP to yes, see absolutely. you in Vancouver? Yes, absolutely. So I'm actually the gynecologist, women's health specialist at the Crossroads Clinic. You can look it up. It's at the corner of Canby and West Broadway. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank Chock you so much for your interest. Thank oh, you, Maureen. It's yes, been a I've pleasure. got interest and I've also got interest in your health. So let's talk about some anti-aging effects. I'm co- I, that's coming up next. I'm Maureen and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. This is Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Uh, many of you emailed me last week after I offered you my all-in diet. That was named after men who uh, wanted to get all in and they couldn't get partway in. <laughs> but you have to go all in on the diet if you want to go all in. You get it? And then you'll get it. Get it? Anyway, okay, that's great. So I'm hopefully I've sent it all to you that I got a rash of emails. And uh, so you can email me too. If you would like my diet, many people are like, oh, does this cost me any money? I'm like, nope, just <laughs> here you go. I give it away for free. Um, because I want you to be healthy. I am passionate about that. I think it's really important. And that's the only way that you can embrace life. And perhaps you can stay up till two o'clock in the morning after a pig roast and a party and jumping off the dog and having an absolute blast with 80 other of your closest friends um, and then get up at six and be on the air (laughs) and then turn up tonight as well. Okay. But anyway, here's another little nugget for you that I have found urolithin found in one of my favorite fruits, pomegranate has may help slow certain aging processes. And that's what we want to do. So Uh, If you want to go the more natural route, pomegranate might be something that you'll pick up at the grocery store, at the fruit store, wherever the fruit stand, wherever you go in your fabulous neighborhood here in Canada, or if you're listening uh, from the States on the podcast, because all of this information is podcasted later after the program, Andrew does that. Um, So there was a paper that was published in the journal Nature Metabolism, and that outlined the results of this clinical trial. So if you're thinking of what uh, fruit to pick up, think of picking up a pomegranate. It might um, 
You'll be glad you did. And, you know, as we know, the skeletal muscles begin to lose strength and mass once a person reaches the young age of 50. A recent clinical trial involving two EPFL entities, spinoff Amazentis and the Laboratory of Integrative Systems Physiology, or LISP, showed that urolithin A, a compound derived from biomolecules found in fruits such as pomegranates, could slow down this process by improving the function of the mitochondria, which are the cell's powerhouses, as you know, because I've told you that before. So there was a joint paper presented the results of the trial, and as I said, it was published in the uh, Nature, in the journal Nature and Metabolism, which I'm sure you all have on your coffee table. If not, it's in your doctor's office for sure. And this demonstrates that ingesting the compound poses no risk to human health. And, uh, you know, the other thing is when older people are at risk of falling. And one reason that they're at risk of falling and unable to get up is because they lose this strength and they lose this muscle mass. And so this is why it's important not only to perhaps work out, lift a few weights, you know, light weights. You don't have to go, you know, like me, lifting three or 400, bench pressing three or 400 at the gym every other day. That's not true. Um, but you don't have to bench press a huge amount. You can just pick up a pomegranate perhaps and, um, you know, increase your muscle strength. Pick up two and they can be your bilateral barbells. They don't weigh that much. But nonetheless, it's important to exercise. That's critical and to eat healthy. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com. If you want my all-in diet, pick up some pomegranates, a couple of them at the supermarket. Think of me when you do and enjoy that juicy, delicious, delectable fruit. And you might want to bring those, the, the juices of that fruit back to the bedroom.ca. That's my website. I am Maureen McGrath. Stay with me for the second hour. We're starting with uh, uh, Larry Gifford. He's, you know him, he's here at the station and uh, we're going to talk about Parkinson's and sex. I'm Maureen McGrath. This is the Sunday Night Health Show. I am Maureen McGrath. Very little information is out there about the role of sexual activity in neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, ALS, and others. Any sexual health research that is done is usually related to sexual dysfunction. Well, I'm delighted to say that the national director of AM Radio at Chorus Entertainment, father, husband, creator of the podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, and a man who has been diagnosed with this neurogenerative disease at a young age, is here with me in the studio tonight to talk about a study that demonstrates that sexual activity is good for men with Parkinson's disease. Thank you so much for joining me, Larry. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks, Maureen. Larry Gifford is here in the studio with me. So this is an interesting study, uh, and they say it affects men more than women, but they also surveyed twice as many men as women, so I think the, the, sur- the survey may not be uh, as valid as they'd like it to be because of that. That's right. There's always flaws in these studies. But do you think men uh, participate in sex or maybe a little bit more interested in sex at different ages, especially as people age? Some women may have menopausal issues or postmenopausal issues, and that may decrease their interest in sex. I mean, there's lots we can talk about around that. Well, for sure. And in Parkinson's specifically, uh, which is this study is talking about, um, there, there are drugs that cause hypersexuality. Uh, so if you take the um, common uh, um, class of drugs known as dopamine agonists, which includes Mirapax and Requip, uh, uh, th- th- this causes sexual hyperactivity. 
So, and I know people who've, who've had that issue be, because of those drugs. So, it, and that's, we don't know from the study if those men were on those drugs. The other thing we don't know is, are they exercising and are they feeling better? Are their motor skills improving because they're also exercising, which everybody's asked to do? That's right. And so what are some of the critical aspects of this study uh, that was done? We had 355 patients, 67% were men who answered the question, um, initially, and 50 to 60 percent of the men answered a question around sexual health. Um, and men were more likely than women to be sexually active at all of the time points. And after multivariable and logistics analyses, the results showed that at two years, male patients who were sexually active were less likely to have non-motor symptoms, especially apathy, and also gastrointestinal symptoms. So I think we have uh, a lot of myths around sex. You know, older people don't have sex. Uh, People with particular medical conditions don't have sex. Young people don't have sex. People with neurodegenerative diseases don't have sex. But this might shed a bit of light for healthcare practitioners. Well, and keep in mind that um, all of the participants um, dropped off somewhat from sexual activity over the course of those two years. Yes. So it wasn't like it increased. No. So the, it, you know, it, it, and the other thing that, that's interesting is that there were, on average, 57 years old at onset. Uh, so I think that's important to just know how old we're talking. That's not that old. No, uh, this is on the younger side when we think about yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, because Parkinson's onset is usually around 60. So this isn't even surveying the people that are true Parkinson's. These are, these are younger onset uh, folks. Not considered young onset per se, which is usually under 50, especially in scientific studies, but 60 is the average age for onset for Parkinson's. Yes. So, so it is on the younger end of that. And so there, there would be probably more inclined to have sexual relations and have more sex. Um, and I think men are more likely to talk about their sexual activity than women. And maybe that's just me being a, a you know a biased man. I don't know. But and I, I'm not in rooms a lot where women talk about, but I am with men. <laughs> women are talking about shoes in those rooms. Okay, <laughs> is that a uh, euphemism? <laughs> um, there are so many myths, as I said, around sex. Like older people don't have sex, and so oftentimes healthcare providers don't ask the question. How important do you think it is to ask the question about sexual activity for patients with neurodegenerative diseases? It's very important, and every time I go to the neurologist, there's a survey I take. And one of the questions or two of the questions is about that, but there's never any follow up. And I can tell you, I've marked different bubbles at different times depending on my situation. Right. And there's been no follow up, which, which which is the miss. So they need to take these surveys and, and compare them from quarter to quarter or every six months or every year and go, oh, so I see this has changed. And, and that's not happening. That's right. And many healthcare practitioners, I know this, are uncomfortable around the subject of sex. They're uncomfortable discussing it with their patients. They're uncomfortable uh, because they think it might be inappropriate. They're, they're afraid of litigation. Uh, they don't know what to ask. And even if they know what to ask, they don't know what to say. This is where sex education is so important. So what would you say, Marie? Well, every person that comes to my clinical practice is asked that question. Or, you know, I, I first give permission. Um, I ask permission, sorry. I ask permission, is it okay? Even though they're coming to me, if they may have low sexual desire or they might be in a sexless marriage, I will say I will be asking you a series of sexual health questions. You don't have to answer any or all of them. 
um, and you can stop answering at any time. And and then I ask the question, you know, are you sexually active? Oftentimes I have to have them define what sexual activity means because it means something different for different people. And so it's around intimacy for some, which touching, it's holding hands, it's kissing, and for others it's uh, penetrative sex. And so there's a variety. And sure. so you need to talk about about that as well. So if you if you were a, a person with Parkinson's and you wanted to talk about that with your doctor, how would you bring it up? You know, that's a challenge as well because patients expect, according to research, patients expect the physicians to bring it up and the physicians expect the patients, but honestly hope they don't. Um, <laughs> so it's so bit, funny, it's sad. It is, it is. I, I'm a bit of an outlier, but if I were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, I would certainly want to address that uh, my sexuality as part of my overall assessment. It's as important as my cardiovascular health and respiratory health and, and movement um, because people with Parkinson's disease have movement disorders or tremors. And so are there any strategies that will help me to continue being sexual with my partner? Um, you know, what can I do? Are there any medications that might help? You know, as a woman, many women haven't addressed their perimenopausal or menopausal issues like painful sex. And so if I were a patient with Parkinson's disease, I might ask, are there any medications or treatments that I can use to decrease the pain? Well, that's the other thing. If you're talking about uh, people who are 57 years old, those women are likely going through menopause or have been through menopause and likely not as sexually active as they once were. Is that accurate? That is accurate, but it's often due to a treatable condition. And so it may be due to some of the symptoms that they have that are associated with menopause, night flashes, hot sweats, so they lose out on sleep, insomnia. Uh, increased heart rate, like fatigue. <laughs> now you know what we've been living with. Um, fatigue and also vaginal dryness and painful sex. And so oftentimes, you know, I, I see patients with spinal cord injury and they'll be in their perimenopausal and menopausal years and they'll say, my spinal cord injury is worse because they are having recurrent urinary tract infections, for example. And I say, you are a person first and a spinal cord injured person second. So this is something that, you know, you're a woman first, basically. So you need to treat that which is likely causing your recurrent urinary tract infections. And that's estrogen, you know, loss of estrogen in the urogenital tract. Well, here's the other thing. It takes two to tango. It sure does. So uh, (laughs) if you're not the person with Parkinson's, then you're the partner in Parkinson's. And uh, they call them caregivers. And Mm. if you're labeled a caregiver, Mm. do you look at the person with Parkinson's as sexually as maybe you once did? And if you're a woman, probably not as much. Maybe it's easier. But for a man, if you call me a caregiver to my wife, then suddenly I feel sort of a medical role uh-huh. in taking care of you. And, uh, and maybe, maybe that's inhibiting sexual activity. I don't know. Absolutely. You know, and caregiving is exhausting, you know, especially given the length of time that one is a caregiver. And it's, it's such an unfortunate term to use the term caregiver, but it's it sounds true. so convalescent. And like, like my wife is a caregiver, but like, but I'm she's working, your wife, but she's my wife and she's, she's mom to our child. And she's, she's a hundred other things other than my caregiver. I, I don't need a lot of help right now. I'm going to in the future. But we like to consider ourselves partners in Parkinson's as opposed to her being the caregiver. Like we're, we're helping each other through this. Absolutely. But it can be exhausting. And just yesterday, I, or Friday, sorry, I had a patient in my clinical practice and she was about 78 and her husband is 80 and he's been diagnosed with Parkinson's and he's had it for about seven or eight years and she's exhausted. Sure. And they're not sexually active 
um, in part because his symptoms are pretty severe and they're having difficulty getting them under control. And, and also she's exhausted and fatigue is the number one reason for low sexual desire in women. She would like to be sexual and this is the thing. People continue to want to be sexual as they age. This is certainly something I've learned from my clinical practice. Well, that makes sense to me. And it doesn't matter what medical condition anybody has. It doesn't mean a, a, a shutdown of your sexuality. Yeah, and I think the unfortunate thing about this study is that they the, the results were were skewed towards the men, and so the headlines were like, it helps men. People were like, what about the women? Like, I saw that <laughs> online. Like, didn't they have enough money to survey women, too? And it, well, it, the, there's a paucity of research <laughs> for women out there, women's health, women's sexual health, so they always go to the men. We just started researching women about 15 to 20 yeah. years ago anyway, so... But but I I think you know it, this is this is a good sort of icebreaker to begin to talk about sex and Parkinson's. Uh, it's something certainly that's not brought up a lot. Although there are there are experts that uh, around the world that talk about uh, sexuality and Parkinson's. I, I've interviewed one on the podcast uh, when life gives you Parkinson's, uh, Gila Bronner, who mm-hmm. is uh, fantastic uh, and very frank and uh, fun. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's I think that's the way you have to be with sexuality. And there's also a placid model. Um, so asking permission, giving limited information, providing specific instructions, and then sending people off to more intensive therapy if they need that. I just finished a seven-city tour across Canada educating OBGYNs, so mm-hmm. obstetrician and gynecologists, psychiatrists, and a few general practitioners about female sexual function. And, uh, you know, they said they, they don't have the information. They didn't learn it in medical school. They would really like to help women in this area and ultimately helping men as well. Um, so it's a critical subject, and it's so tied to health, is, is I think, uh, the, the message uh, from this little study at the end of the day. Is there a best resource people can go to if they want more information, Maureen? Well, they can go to my website, backtothebedroom.ca, and they can go to your podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, which is phenomenal, and I've learned a tremendous amount, and so have my patients. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, do it every week. You're very welcome. (laughs) Like the pun, like the pun, Larry. Okay, well, thank you so much. That's Larry Gifford, National Director of AM Radio at Chorus Entertainment, father, husband, creator of the podcast, When Life Gives You Parkinson's, and a man who has been living with this diagnosis for a little while now. At least a decade. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, all right, love to have you back because we can talk a lot more about this. I'm Maureen McGrath, and this is the Sunday Night Health Show. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at CKNW.com, the Radio Player Canada app, tune in, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.